Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5 as we continue our study in the book of Nehemiah. And this evening our uh, title is Good versus Greed. Good versus Greed. As we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, we've seen some of the opposition that came from outside of Jerusalem in doing the work of God. Then there was the opposition that came from inside God's people. They, had, they dealt with the rubbish in chapter 4, verse 10. And Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. Then there was another form of, of, of trouble. And it was in discouragement from within. And that was fear. We see that in chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. And it, and it reads, And our adversary said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Nehemiah was now having to deal with the third problem from within, which was greed during the work that was going on in Jerusalem. Greed was just another problem to be added to the growing list of the problems that he's already had to deal with while he was doing the work of God. Nehemiah dealt with ridicule, he dealt with laziness, he's dealt with unfaithfulness, the threat of war, rubbish, fear, now greed. Greed is an ugly thing because it comes from self. It's rooted in selfishness. And greed will run over anyone who gets in its way to get what they want, whether it's friend or family. So here we see more opposition coming from within God's people. This is where the devil loves to strike the hardest. And this is where the devil strikes his greatest blow. And in the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil couldn't destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was join it. The devil already caused discouragement among the Jews from the people on the outside. And now he takes it a step further, causing problems on the inside. In chapter 4, we saw how Nehemiah dealt with two common kinds of opposition. Ridicule, which is the easiest of all, of all kinds of opposition. And then the threat of violence. Violence is often used when ridicule doesn't work. Nehemiah overcame the ridicule by recognizing it for what it was. Just a weak attempt to get him to stop the work. He dealt with it in two ways. He took the matter to God in prayer, looked to God in his defense, and he kept on building. Nehemiah overcame the second attack in practical ways, like arming his workers, posting guards, keeping the people in the city at night where they would be safe, and they set a watch. And these plans were successful, his enemies were stopped, and the work of God moved steadily forward. Now, based on what we see here in chapter 5, there's a new kind of opposition that's come up, and it's come from an unexpected source. The first two kinds of opposition, like I said, came from the outside, from Israel's enemies. But this new form of opposition was coming from the inside, and it arose because of wrong behavior by some of the Jewish people themselves. But that seems to be the way it's, it always is. You're busy doing an important work. And people who aren't Christians, you know, who have opposed you uh, and don't share your vision, well, you expect that. You've overcome that form of opposition and you're moving forward. But then all of a sudden there's a problem within the church itself. 
This kind of problem is often more of a problem than the outside opposition. And this was true with Israel before this happened. During the days of the kings, the Jewish states had been opposed by the pagan neighbors. There had been many wars. But when God sent prophets to call the people back to righteousness, it wasn't the pagans who killed God's messengers, but the Jews themselves. And in the same way, if you look at church history, you'll see that the most successful attacks on the church didn't come from unbelievers, but from those inside the church, from people who say they know God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So then who's to blame then for the most... Uh, for, for most of the opposition to Christian workers today? Is it the government? With its ongoing separation of church and state policies? Is it the ACLU? With its strong anti-Christian bias? Now, these, these can be sources of real opposition, and they are. But isn't it true that the greatest opposition to Christian work today comes from those inside the church who want a form of godliness, but they reject true Christianity. We are our own worst enemy. So with that, let's begin with chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And Nehemiah says, And there was a great outcry of the people and their, wage, and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, are, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. So this problem had been growing for a long time. But up to this point, Nehemiah didn't know about it. These people wanted to build the walls of Jerusalem. So they very quietly mortgaged their property to their brethren, their own family. And there were those who were in the lending business. In Nehemiah's day, some Jews had borrowed money. And when they couldn't pay back the money, they had to sell their sons and their daughters into slavery. And it was only for, <clears throat> for a certain period of time, but it was long enough to ruin their lives in some cases. The enemies outside hadn't been able to do much harm as long as there was love and harmony within the body. But now there's conflict. Let's look at verse 5. Uh, 5, 6, and 7. It says, Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And, ser and after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers, and I said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. <clears throat> so Nehemiah, Nehemiah was really uh, angry about what was happening, but notice how he didn't let his anger take over his emotions. You know, what had happened was, you know, this problem had been growing for a long time and they began to mortgage their, their, their land and their, their homes to, to, to pay for the taxes. And so he, Nehemiah got wind of this and, and again, he didn't let his anger take over his emotions. He took the time to think things over before he did anything or before he said anything. Notice it says, well, again, uh, Psalm 4, 6 tells us, or 4, 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. 
In other words, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about that. Think whatever the prophet, think about it overnight and just remain silent. You see, a life that is, that is moved by reflection, that is stopping to think things over, will be more calm than one life that's moved by emotions and feelings. Then Nehemiah called a public meeting to deal with the problem. Look at verse 8. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. So at the meeting, Nehemiah says to the people, the rest of us are doing all that we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But he says, you're basically selling them back into slavery once again. How often must we redeem them? You know, how often do we have to go and get them back? But they had nothing to say in their defense. Nehemiah Nehemiah openly rebuked the nobles and the rulers for what they were doing. And he exposed those who had done wrong in front of the whole group, which is the right thing to do when something like this happens. And also the church congregation should be warned if there are those in it who are not being honest in their dealings and are moving in a dishonest way. Evil needs to be brought out into the open as soon as possible. Look at verse 9. Nehemiah says, Then I said, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? So their behavior was a disgrace what would their enemies think when they saw what was going on i mean it was a terrible witness by the people the world usually knows all about the sin in the church that's why we have to fight it even publicly if we have to because it tells the world that the church is standing firm on its stand against ungodliness And if we don't fight evil within God's camp, that is within God's church, it tells the world that his people are hypocrites and it brings shame on God and his work. We always have to be careful about how we behave ourselves in front of the unsaved. Because the world watches us very closely. And our behavior will either honor or dishonor God in their eyes. Here the greedy Jews were giving a terrible testimony of their faith to their enemies. And whenever we say we're a Christian and that we live by the word of God, we live by the highest and the holiest standards. And then we turn around and we show the world that we're just like the world. We're just as greedy or covetous as the world. We're just as scheming and crooked as the world. Then the world sees the phoniness of our faith. And we're a disgrace to God. The Jews were building the walls for all the enemies to see. And the Jews said God was helping them. But then they get greedy. And in their greed, greedy ways, it showed their hypocritical faith. And it brought a lot of shame on God. And the dishonor that sin brings on God is what makes sin so bad. Look at verses 10 and 11. He said, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. 
Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. They, were not, they weren't just lending them money. They were, they were you know, just taxing them on it. I mean, they're, they're, they were just making a big profit on them. That's what usury means. He says, me and my brothers and, and, and the workers, we've been lending the people money and grain. So we need to stop. You need to stop this business of charging this interest. You need to give them back their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and you need to do it right now. And you need to pay them back the interest that you have charged them when you lent them the money for the grain, the new oil, the new wine and the olive oil. Nehemiah said, you know, what? I could have done the same thing. And you know what? This was the real test for Nehemiah. But you see, Nehemiah didn't use his position or his power to make a profit, which many men do. They use their position and their power to make make gain. Nehemiah demanded that the wealthy Jews give back what they had collected and do not collect any more payments. Verse 12. So the people said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. So they agreed with Nehemiah. But Nehemiah took it a bit further. He says, I want you to put your money where your mouth is. He says, I want you to sign a contract. It's pretty sad that you can't even believe Christians a lot of times. We should be able to trust the word of a brother or a sister in Christ. One Christian Christian businessman said this. He said, I have gotten to the place where I don't even like to do business with Christians. I'd much rather do business with the man in the world because I automatically watch him. But the Christian, I assume he'll be honest, but that's not always the case. Nehemiah was a practical man. He said, okay, even though you've promised to return what you've taken... I want you to sign this oath, which would show that you're for reals. It's like signing a contract because it required the people who were making the promise to keep their promise. Verse 13. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and I said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. So after Nehemiah made the people confirm their promise in front of the priest, he did, more, he, he did one more thing to encourage them to keep their promise and to change their ways. It says that he shook out the fold of his garment. Now, this is the way that God will shake you out, he says, if you don't keep your promise. And it was a symbolic way for an announcing a curse on all those who wouldn't keep their promise. And, and, and this curse really made their commitment a, a, a much more serious thing. Because it put a great fear in their hearts. Because in that day, there was a lot of fear about falling under a curse. So the curse made by Nehemiah showed that he wasn't messing around with evil. He wasn't taking evil lightly. He was letting The greedy people know that what they were doing was bad and they had to stop it or else. And you know what? This is the only way to stop evil. We can't fight evil by passive action and slaps on the back of the hand. 
Sometimes we have to be very forceful and firm in fighting against evil if we want to stop evil. So the people did in verse 13, according to this promise. And people who don't keep their word show their faulty character and a dishonest heart. A person is known by his word. Is it trustworthy? Will he do what he promises to do? If not, his character is bad and he can't be trusted. And we have to ask ourselves, do we keep our word? Because if we don't, the profession of our Christianity smells a little fishy. So the people said, amen to what Nehemiah had asked for. And they praised the Lord. And you see, praising God comes when sin is properly dealt with and it's forsaken. If sin was properly dealt with in churches today, there would be a lot more godly thing, a lot more godly people and a lot more fruit in in the church. And as a result, there would be more praise to God. You see, sin silences praise. Sin stops the work of God. Remember when Miriam and Aaron came against uh, Moses? God called them out on the carpet. And it stopped Israel from moving to the promised land for a week while God dealt with this problem. So again, sin stops the work of God. It silences praise. And the dishonoring of God and his word and holy things going on in many churches reflect the great sin that's in the congregations. And it started way back in the early church. It's not new. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? You know, the people were all giving to meet the needs of the poor and they were all just, you know, doing what, what, you know, what they felt led to do. And they were giving the money to, to, the, to the apostles. Well, Ananias and Sapphira say, well, we sold some property. And here's the money for that property. But they only gave the apostles some of that money and they kept back the rest. And Peter said, why have you lied? He said, that money was yours. You could have gave part of it and kept it. That would have been fine. You could have gave it all and kept it. That would have been fine. You could have have kept it and that was fine. But why did you lie? And then after Ananias was called out, Acts says that he dropped dead on the site. And then three hours later, we read that his wife fell dead. But it says right after Ananias died and right after his wife died. Listen to what it says. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. In other words, after the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was dealt with, God moved among the people. And great signs and wonders were done by the apostles. When David was confessing his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, he said, Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Psalm 51, 15. Sin had kept David from praising God. David's sin had brought great dishonor upon God. But when he confessed his sin, then he was able to praise God again. And if your life is not giving out much praise for God, you need to check your heart. 
and confess and forsake the sin in, the, in your life. And you know what? Pra- praising God will come again. Psalm fifty-one, twelve. he said, Restore, restore to me the joy of your salvation, Lord. And now we're going to get a look at, into Nehemiah's personal life. Look at verses 14 and 15. can't find it here, but I know it's here. I see verse 13. There it is down at the bottom. Okay, verses 14 and 50. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. So during Nehemiah's time as governor, his life was one of personal integrity. And he wasn't interested in personal selfish gain. It shows how different he was from the greedy loan sharks that he had to rebuke. That also showed that he wasn't a hypocrite who rebuked others while he did the same things himself. This section of chapter 5 shows Nehemiah's great character. Nehemiah's decision not to use his position to tax the people to pay for his expenses as governor, that was a great choice. Declining to benefit from making the people pay his expenses was a choice between rights and responsibilities. And Nehemiah made a great choice by choosing responsibilities over rights. And boy, that's a hard choice today for a lot of people because the popular choice is, it's my right. And so they stand up for their rights and many times they bring dishonor to God. But responsibility surpasses rights in importance and priority. Nehemiah had the right and the power to tax the people. But he didn't because of what was going on at the time. Jesus did the same thing when he was questioned about paying taxes. He told Peter, we don't want to offend them, so go down to the lake and throw in the line, open the mouth of the first fish you catch, and you'll find a large silver coin. Take it and pay the taxes for both of us. You see, Jesus gave up his rights for the sake of being a good witness and not offending the people. You see, Nehemiah was more concerned about his responsibilities as a ruler to seek the good of those in his nation than to seek his rights. He didn't take the privileges that might rightly have come to him because of of his position, you know, taxes and the good life. But on the contrary, he lived on his own money. He supported himself. And he used his personal possessions to feed those who were less fortunate. And those who followed his example, hey, you know, uh, they, they gave and they worked too. Look at verse 16. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall and we did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Nehemiah wouldn't excuse himself or his servants from working on the walls. Nehemiah supervised the building of the walls and he was right there with the workers by the walls as we learned uh, earlier. 
Nehemiah didn't order the work and plan the work and then go to the construction uh, trailer and take a break while everybody else was doing the work. And then come out after it was all done and say, oh, look what I did. He didn't come and take all the glory for the work. And his servants didn't get special treatment just because they worked for the governor. They had to work on the walls as well. This action by Nehemiah would really encourage the other workers. Because seeing Nehemiah and his servants out working on the walls would let them know that, hey, Nehemiah is with us. He's backing us. He is really supporting what we're doing. He's one with us. And it would help to get, any, get rid of any bad vibes or feelings that the people have that are created when rulers use their authority to excuse themselves from the work and to take it easy instead. Look at verses 17 and 18. He said, and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Boy, only if our government would follow Nehemiah. <laughs> What a different nation we would be, we would have. You see, it was Nehemiah's duty to feed those that were ruling with him in government. But he also fed other Israelites, including those who came to him from other nations around them who were also in terrible need. So not only did Nehemiah not charge the people taxes, but he went out of his way to feed the needy and his own government helpers. Again, a great example for all governments to follow. Now, why did Nehemiah do this? Why did he behave this way? Because if you look at verse 9 and verse 15, it says he feared God. He feared the Lord. The fear of God was Nehemiah's motivator in his exceptionally unselfish behavior as the governor of Judah. And this helps us to understand why we have so much corruption and cruelty in most other governments of the world. Because there is a lack of the fear of God in the rulers. And when the fear of God is present, rulers will, uh, I'm sorry, where the fear of God is present, rulers will be considerate. And they will have character in their work. But where the fear of God is lacking, rulers will be cruel, they'll be greedy, and they will use the people to their advantage. They will use the people, not serve the people. And you know, when we vote, and we have an election coming up, the first qualification that we should look for, is there a fear of God in the candidates, regardless of what side? Are there fear, is, there fear of God, is there the fear of God in candidates? When they lack the fear of God, they will use the people instead of serve them. When the people chose, or when the people wanted a king, and they didn't want to be ruled by God anymore, God said, so be it. But he told Samuel, I want you to warn the people what's going to happen. And Samuel passed on God's warning to the people who are asking for a king. Samuel said, now this is how a king will reign over you. And as you read the chapter, 
Six times Samuel said, he will take. He will take. He will take. That's why you need to listen to who you're voting for with your head and not your emotions and feelings. You need to listen to those who are going to take away your religious freedoms. Who will dictate to you how you're going to believe and what you're going to believe. You want to listen to those who want to take away your constitutional rights for one to bear arms. Who want or are going to want to take away your parental rights and tell you what your children are going to learn. Those who want to take away your military preparedness and weaken our military. And those who want to take away the rule of law and our border security and take away VA accountability, take away your chance at a better life. Listen with your mind, not your feelings and emotions. Why did Nehemiah Nehemiah behave the way he did? Because he felt for the people. Even though he he had to pay for his own provisions every day, he refused to claim the, the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden, according to verse 18. The provisions that Nehemiah paid for every day, he paid out of his own pocket for one ox, six fat sheep, not skinny sheep, but six fat sheep, a lot of domestic birds, and, and every day, every 10 days, they needed a large supply of all kinds of wine, and yet he refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people were already having a hard time. And unlike the greedy Jews who cruelly took advantage of the misfortunes of others to get rich for themselves, Nehemiah did just the opposite. He saw the heavy burden on the people because of their stressful conditions and to help ease their problems. He re- because of that, he refused to charge the people taxes. He paid the price for the people rather than the burden, putting the burden on the people with the expenses. You see, Nehemiah ruled with compassion. Compassion for the people guided the way he governed. Nehemiah really felt for the people's problems. He felt that they were real. His compassion for the people was real. He was willing to sacrifice for them. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 19. Nehemiah said, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, why did Nehemiah say that? Was he trying to score brownie points? He sounds self-righteous. Oh, Lord, remember me for what I've done for the people. Was he doing this all along so God would reward him? Was he just looking for a reward? No. Nehemiah's prayer shows his desire for God's reward and approval. Nehemiah wasn't looking for the respect and the praise from the people. He was looking for the praises of God. And verse 19 shows us the greatest thing about Nehemiah's service. He only did what he did to please the Lord. Verse 19 is his fourth prayer, and it was a wonderful expression of worship and humility. He didn't want praise or reward from the people. He only wanted the reward God would give him for his sacrificial service. 
Now, some of the people may not have appreciated their leaders as they should, but that didn't upset Nehemiah. And if you're a leader, that shouldn't upset you either. Why? You want the praise of God. You want his approval and his acceptance. You're waiting for him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, not for somebody in the body or or, or anybody else. Say, oh, what a great servant you are. I want to hear it from God. Nehemiah knew that the final evaluation of his life and service would come from God. And you know what? He was willing to wait. So in closing, if you're in a position of spiritual leadership, this, this chapter has some really good, important lessons for you. For starters, expect problems to arise among people. Wherever you have people, you have the potential for problems. And whenever God's work is prospering, the enemy sees to it that problems begin. And don't be surprised when your people can't always get along with each other. Second lesson, confront the problems courageously and early on. Now, a good philosophy of the world might be, oh, there's no problem so great that you can't ignore it, but that will not work in the, work, in, work in the Lord's service. Listen to what David said in Psalm 101.8. When he talked about serving God and walking in his, in his father's house. He said, early, no, early I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Notice early. Early I'm going to destroy the wicked of the land and I may cut off the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Every problem you ignore will only root itself deeper and deeper and harvest bitter fruits. Pray for God's help and tackle the problem as soon as possible. Third, be sure that your own integrity is intact and that your heart is pure. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4, 24 through 27, guard your heart above all else because it determines the course of your life. Avoid all perverse talk. Stay away from the corrupt speech. In other words, watch what you say. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what, is, what lies before you. That is, watch what you see. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. Watch where you go. Watch what you say. Watch what you see. And watch where you go. And lastly, in every problem you experience, look for a chance to serve the Lord. Solving problems in ministry is not uh, an intellectual er uh, exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. It's a spiritual experience. If we depend on the world's wisdom, we are going to get, we're going to get what the world can do. But if we depend upon God's wisdom, we'll get what God can do. All that we say and all that we do must be motivated by love controlled by truth and done to the glory of God. The work had been interrupted by calling the assembly and solving the financial problems. But now it was time for everybody to get back to work to his or her place on the wall and Nehemiah's enemies would also be busy as we'll see next week. But Nehemiah behaved the way he did because he feared God. And you know what? That is always a good example to follow. Father, we thank you so much for the powerful lessons, God, in chapter 5 here. Father, help us, Father, to follow 
your example, Lord. And the examples that, that your servants have set, God. Those servants who feared you, Lord, and worshipped you. And were fruitful in their work. God, let us use the scriptures as our guide. We don't need men's seminars or, or philosophies or advice. We need the word of God. And we need to follow those, those men that, that follow God's advice. We can follow them as long as they're following God's word. Following God's word in every area of life is so critical. And it's so rewarding in many ways. And best of all, in the ways of salvation, eternal life. And by obeying God's word, we'll stay out of a lot of trouble. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But Jesus said that unless you're born again, you'll never see heaven. You'll only see heaven through Christ, through receiving his forgiveness of sins making him your Lord and your Savior. And that's the word of God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. So again, obeying the scriptures, coming to Christ. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if God has spoken to your heart, And the Holy Spirit has made known to you your need for salvation. You want to receive Christ, the Lord and Savior. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith.